Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guests today are Crystal Dunn of the Portland Thorns and authors Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg of the new book, Messi versus Ronaldo. Before we get going, you can sign up free or paid for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We are less than one month away from World Cup 2022, so sign up now. That's grantwall.com. Now, here's my interview with Crystal Dunn. The NWSL final between Portland and Kansas City is this Saturday on Big CBS at 9 p.m. Eastern. And our guest now is Portland's Crystal Dunn, who scored a huge late game winner in the semifinal. Crystal, congratulations on all of that. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Grant. Um, thank you so much for having me. I know you're so busy, so thank you for doing this uh, the week of the final here. But I got to ask you about this goal because one of it's one of the coolest moments in league history. And I'm wondering, where does that goal rank among the <laughs> goals that you've scored in your career? Top one, top three, or something else? Oh, I mean, obviously, maybe because it's fresh on my mind, it has to be number one. You know, it has to be number one because given how this year has been just, you know, coming back from pregnancy leave and and just, you know, fighting my way back onto the field and, and you know, not really knowing what the rest of this year was going to look like. I think, um, you know, that goal just really summed up the year that I've had just like sheer perseverance and um, just kind of the will to kind of fight my way back onto the field. Now, on May 20th this year, just Five months ago, you gave birth to your son, Marcel. Now you're scoring the goal of the season in the NWSL. How would you describe that journey over the past five months? Yeah, so honestly, everyone who's known me from the beginning of this journey um, knew that I always, my, my thought was always get back on the field. You know, I, I never wanted to just be like, oh, I'm having a baby. Okay, let me take two years off. Let me, you know, it was always about giving birth to a happy, healthy baby. And then, you know, getting my way back into the joy of soccer again and getting back on the field. Um, I trained up until I was nine months pregnant. Um, I think that that really helps me feel connected to my teammates. Um, I wanted to be around them. It was really important for me to not just, you know, announce my pregnancy and be like, okay, bye guys. I'll see you, you know, see you when I want to see you. Um, you know, I was there during preseason. I was there during the season. Um, I was at a lot of the games, Um, and I think for me, you know, after I was ready to, you know, step outside the house after becoming a mom, I was like, I was ready. I was ready to be back on the field and I was ready to, um, do whatever I could to give my team the support, um, that they needed. Um, whether that was just being a training player, whether that was, um, just being on the field and being a voice, you know, and then I think that role turned into now I'm in passing patterns. Now I'm, um, a neutral on the team. Now I'm, you know, actually able to, to, be in contact, um, on the field. And I think, um, I never really knew where I would be at the end of this year, but what I did know is that I was going to do whatever it took for me to get back onto the field in some capacity. So where are you right now in terms of how many minutes you think you could play in a game? Cause I know you haven't been starting games yet. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. what do you think you would be capable of? Yeah. I mean, obviously the thought of a 90 minute game sounds crazy to me right now, but um, as far as fitness wise, I think, you know, I feel pretty fit. I think it's, it's definitely tactical based on, you know, what the team needs. You know, I think, um, stepping onto the field for the first time against Orlando was just like getting my, 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 the nerves out of, of playing soccer again. And then from there, I've gradually increased my minute load, but, um, yeah, I would say now I could definitely push for 60. I think like 
if everyone fell off the face of the earth and I needed to play 90 minutes, like, could I will my way to do that? Of course. But um, I think what was also something to navigate this year was knowing that I'm coming back onto the uh, coming back playing after, you know, the team had already had a whole season under their belt. You know, I didn't want to be the player that just comes back and says, Hey, I deserve to start because of who I am and what I've done in the past. Like it was really important for me to be like, no, whatever my role is for the team, it has to make sense. It has to be what's best for the team. Um, And, you know, along the way, obviously for me, it's always about gaining more confidence, gaining more minutes, but you know, it, it doesn't, it didn't necessarily make sense for me to just, come back and and start you know that's that's crazy <laughs> what kind of game are you expecting in this final because kansas city has been out possessed i checked in in each of its last five games so they don't usually have the majority of possession but they found ways to score on the counter as seattle mm-hmm. obviously found out is that what you're thinking you'll see from them this weekend yeah, I mean, honestly, this league is so wild and crazy. I think every team has a style of play. Um, and I think it, it's actually known that t- a lot of teams that don't have a lot of possession are pretty lethal on transition. And they don't need a lot of the ball in order to make things happen. So I think, you know, them not having the ball, they're pretty confident in, in maybe not having the highest percentage um, out of both teams. And I think um, that's something that we'll obviously always uh, take note of and, and be aware of. But um, for us you know, we, we like to keep the ball. We like to possess the ball, but that does not mean that we are only this possession based team. We, we have obviously very good front runners who um, could be very efficient in transition. So I think, you know, the final is going to be kind of like a chess match where, you know, the first 15, 20 minutes are probably always going to be about feeling the, the opposition out and, and seeing what they're giving and what, where you can maybe expose them. But I think um, they're going to be a very organized team. They're a hardworking team. And I think it's just going to be about, what team shows up that day and, and is willing to kind of outwork and, and outmastermind the other. This game's on big CBS in prime time, which was not the original schedule. Like they actually altered it so this would be the case. As a player, how do you feel about something like that happening? I mean, first and foremost, that's incredible. I think um, the women's game has grown so much from even my first you know years uh, in this league. And I think um, that's where we want the women's game to be. We want that to be the standard. Um, what we've seen these last this last weekend of, you know, sta- uh, fans showing up and twenty plus thousand people are in these stands cheering these teams on. I think that is really where we want the women's game to be on a consistent level. You know, we don't want. I mean, we're happy that for playoffs, obviously that was the case. But you know, throughout the year, how incredible would that be that twenty thousand people are are showing up each week? Um, so I think the game has grown. It's only going to continue growing. Uh, more and more. And I think us being on primetime is exactly where we've all envisioned this game to be. Um, it, it obviously took 10 years for this, but uh, better late than never. But I think that us having this final at this time only to me means that that should be the standard. We shouldn't be saying, oh, this is, you know, the first time we did it. And, you know, we're happy we did it one time. Like this should be what it is every single year for every single final. Now, the last time I saw you in person was in London recently, and you spoke thoughtfully on the Yates report and what it showed, revealed about abuse in the sport. Obviously, the Thorns are a significant part of that report. How have you and your teammates approached all of that at a time when you're trying to win the biggest games of the season? Yeah, I mean, it has been a long year for, you know, my organization, obviously, but just across the NWSL. I think each team is trying to heal, but also trying to find joy in playing this game again. I think um, for my team specifically, a big part of this year was trying to just get back into enjoying the game. You know, I think a lot of issues 
off the field, on the field, take that away at times. And I think um, a big part of us going into the season was about one playing for each other, playing for our community um, who also shares in uh, the experiences that are going on. And I think um, it's just, it was, it was about taking it day by day as well, because I think some weeks feel easier than others. You know, you go a couple weeks where you're like, ah, oh, I feel great. I'm buzzing. My team is buzzing. And then, you know, you get hit with moments where you're like, oh my gosh, everything is so heavy around us. How can we possibly focus on playing soccer when there's so many things going on and bigger issues than this game. But um, I think over the last couple of weeks, we just realized, you know, we're here to play this game for ourselves, for each other, for the community. And I think uh, the game on Sunday really showed that, you know, there are fans that were like, we don't want to show up. We don't want to, you know, support the organization. But I think seeing many people show up really helped us, you know, play that game and show up and really try to put out the best performance possible, because that's, that's really why we play this game for the fans for the community, for ourselves, for each other. And I think that's how we've been able to get through is just knowing that, you know, it's it's a blessing that we play a team sport where you don't always have to be the strongest person that day. Someone else can kind of share that load with you. And, you know, it's okay to only give 100% of the 20% you may have that day. And there's been days like that, that I feel like I'm this energizer person that comes in every day. And there's days where I was like, I'm tired, guys. I really am just going through it and I need a moment. And that's the good thing about a team sport is like, you don't have to be alone. You don't have to feel like you are the only one that can kind of contribute on that day. couple more questions with Crystal Dunn. Really appreciate the time. Now, when we see you score a goal like you did last weekend, we're reminded maybe that you're a former golden boot winner in this <laughs> league. And I can't help but wonder if you should be playing higher up the field for the U.S. women's national team than uh -huh. as a left back. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, Grant, this question, why? Um, I mean, it's no secret that I consider myself a more attacking player. Um, and that's not to say that I'm the world's best goal scorer or the world's best assister. It's just more so to say, like, I feel like I'm at my best when I'm further up the pitch. Um, I like to connect with people. I like to be creative, but be creative in a way that's not selfish, but to create for other people to have their moment as well. You know, and I think... That's really the joy that I've always felt in the midfield is, one, you get to defend as if you're a defender. You know, you get to help stop plays, but you also get to win the ball and face forward and be like, all right, now I'm actually expected to, you know, help get this ball in the back of the net. So, you know, you know, when people ask this question, I think there's a, there's a really big reason why I love club soccer, because I've never really been asked to play outside back in club. I've only played outside back my rookie season in 2014. And since then, I've always been a midfielder. So would I love to play midfield for the U.S. Men's National Team? Yes. But we obviously have a lot of very, very skilled midfielders. Um, so I just think I've at this stage, I'm 30 years old now, I've kind of just settled with the idea that I will probably be an outside back for the women's national team moving forward. And I've grown to just make that position my own and to play it to my most authentic self. You know, I'm not just a only true defender. I think for me, getting involved in the attack is something I've, I've really enjoyed and embraced as an outside back. So yeah, a girl can dream obviously and be, you know, this midfielder for the national team. But, you know, I think scoring goals in, in, in club is, is, has given me the fill that, that I need. <laughs> you have a future in international diplomacy after your playing days based on that response, if you yes. want that. So thank you, Crystal, <laughs> for being upfront about it. Uh, we did just have the World Cup draw this last weekend. The U.S. just had two rare defeats in friendlies mm -hmm. against England and Spain. In what areas do you think the U.S. needs to get better in time for the World Cup? 
Yeah, I mean, great question. I think, you know, those two games uh, were a big test for us, you know, and I think I've played this game long enough to know that with games that you lose, you learn about a lot about yourself, you know, and it's it's a huge lesson that we all learned. I think our performances weren't good enough. I think we all know that. No one walked off those fields, off the field saying, wow, like we're surprised we we didn't win that game. I think for us, we created some chances in both, but I think the reality was our performances weren't up to the standard that we are normally used to playing at. And um, I think for us, you know, luckily the World Cup isn't tomorrow. I think that's the great thing is that we have some time. But um, I think just establishing, just, you know, developing our more style of play, um, connecting a bit more with each other, I think is going to be a huge positive moving forward. I think there was just some off passes that we just didn't connect. And I think you can't really expect to win games if you're not connecting passes. Um but I think moving forward, just deepening our roster, just making sure that everyone's on the same page and just continuing to believe in the process. Like, um, you know, we're those have been that that have been a part of the journey know that, you know, we usually kind of do unfortunately lose to a top ranked team leading into a, a major tournament. And we go on and are very successful in those tournaments. So not saying that this is necessarily the case. Hopefully it is. But I do think again, you learn a lot through through losing. You learn a lot through failure. And I think um, for us, we look at those games as that just wasn't us. And we need to now correct things that we know that we can control and just hope that we can be better moving forward. Lastly, I had Sophia Smith, your Portland Thorns and U.S. national team teammate on the podcast not too long ago and had a really good conversation with her. I wanted to get your take. What do you like about the way Sophia Smith plays and, and what do you think about how good she could become? Oh, Sophia Smith. I love her. She's my little sister. I always say every day. So um, she I'm just I'm one. I'm so honored to be her teammate. I think she is somebody who just you want on your side. She is a hassle to play against. I will say she is not easy to mark. She has such great change of direction. She's strong. She is somebody who I'm like, thank goodness she's on my team, you know? Um, but she's one, her being so young just is scary because she is already so good. And I know that she's going to continuously grow her game and she's not complacent. She wants to get better. She wants to learn and grow. And um, just what I love most about her game is how she can kind of make anything out of, out of, out of nothing. You know, there'll be three players around her and I'm like, all right, well, let's just, you know, prepare for the defensive transition. And I'm like, boom, she she takes those three players on and scores. And I'm like, okay, don't know how that happened, but that's incredible, you know? So I think her ability to kind of shift the ball, um, draw defenders and still find ways and pockets to like maneuver and get out of tight spaces, I think is actually incredible. And it's it's very unique, you know? It's not, it's not something you see a lot. You know, one player versus three players, you're instantly thinking, they're going to lose that ball. There's no way they can contain that ball and, and keep it. But she just finds ways to to create goals and um, just she's feisty. She works hard. She's not this forward that just wants to kind of get on the ball. When they when they lose it, they just stop and they put their hands in the air. She's somebody who is our first defender. We always we're like, you control our defense. You're the first line of defense. So for her to be a goal scorer, but also want to do the work defensively is just, you know, uh, it's a it's an extra bonus to her qualities. Portland's Crystal Dunn will meet the Kansas City Current in the NWSL final this Saturday on Big CBS at 9 p.m. Eastern. Crystal, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. 
It's time now for our book talk discussion, and our guests are Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg, whose follow-up to The Club is a new book called Messi vs. Ronaldo, One Rivalry, Two Goats, and the Era That Remade the World's Game. I have read it. It's really well done. Congratulations, guys, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Grant. Thank you very much. Um, you were on the podcast when your previous book, The Club, came out. Loved discussing that, and that book has had real staying power. I, I still run into folks who talk about that and the, and the formation of the Premier League and that whole story. And this book, I think, will have the same kind of staying power. So congrats. Uh, these are two of the most famous people in the world, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. How did you approach writing a book on these two people who've had so much written about them before? I think for us, one of the big things was realizing a lot has been written about each of them individually. Um, but you know, any any biography of just one of them has a giant hole in it shaped like the other one. Um, so by taking the approach that we were going to consider them together, almost as one entity, uh, and measuring also their ripple effect across the world of soccer, not just here's a collection of their goals and their their trophies, but really, you know, what does it mean in this era where really, they kind of catalyze the players becoming bigger than clubs phenomenon. Um, how how will how can we step back and look at all of that, especially now that they're very much in their in their twilight? Yeah, I mean, I kind of look at them as you know, from a sporting perspective, they've done incredible things, and also from a business perspective, they've had an immense impact on the sport of soccer. From a sporting perspective. How rare is it for two players to be at the very top for so many years? I mean, in soccer, I don't think we've ever witnessed something like this before, right? It's it's like you say, it's it's um we've had eras that were dominated by one singular star before Pele, Maradona, Cruyff, you know, the 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 various Mount Rushmore figures of um of in football history. But um but yeah, to have the same two players um you know at the top of the game for so long. I don't think is has ever, you know, it, we've seen it in other sports. You know, there have been many times when, you know, Federer and Nadal, like th th there have been Phil, Phil and Tiger to, to an extent that it, it's something that exists in other sports, especially individual sports. But for a team sport to be dominated by two individuals for so long, I don't think has ever happened before in, in football history. And I do think, you know, as you say, I think when people look back on this era, I do think that they will think of it as the Messi Ronaldo era. You know, it, that that's how that's how they will sort of conceive of this time. It also just from a business perspective, how have Messi and Ronaldo changed the landscape of the soccer world? In terms of their their power, you know, growing throughout their careers, uh we saw it happen, you know, very slowly at first and then all at once, kind of like, you know, Oscar Wilde and going broke, but the way they progressively became the clubs that they played for. Barcelona became indistinguishable from Messi for a long time and basically bankrupted itself in trying to maximize his time because I think they understood um, to their detriment that you know, history would not be kind to the people who may, you know, maybe didn't make the most or wasted Messi's peak years. Um, so because that peak lasted so long and that you have to continue building a cast of characters around him to, to give him the best chance to win, you know, that's 10 years of spending at astronomical levels 
that that mortgage your future. And we saw that happen with with other clubs around Ronaldo too. Uh, you know, Florentino Perez realized it and realized that they were spending at a crazy level until the point where he finally had to let Ronaldo go. Um, so, and, and when Ronaldo did go to Juve, you know, we write about it not so much as a transfer but as a merger. Uh, you see the social numbers of Real Madrid and Juve kind of migrate in a in a really striking way, where people were not just fans of clubs; they were fans of these players, regardless of which jersey they were wearing. Yeah, I think they sort of gave rise to that super club era, like you say, Josh. I mean, they they were two like super uh, players, super individuals. But you know, for for most of the last fifteen years, to have any sort of reasonable expectation to win the Champions League, you had to have Messi or Ronaldo in your team, and I think that meant that uh, uh, you know, hold, holding you know holding one of those two was such a trump card that inevitably many of the other world's best players sort of gravitated towards them and joined clubs playing with them because they, you know if you can't beat them, join them. You, you have to you have to be on those teams to have sort of to to, to accomplish those things, and certainly in the club game um, that, that that you'd want to. So. I think, you know, as well as being perhaps, you know, arguably the two goats of soccer, I think there's a, a strong argument that Barcelona, Real Madrid in the sort of early 2010s are the strongest club sides that the game has ever seen. Yeah, it's fascinating to me um, because it seems like for so long these two players were identified with Real Madrid and Barcelona and did symbolize each individually what those two clubs did very well and now that they're no longer with those clubs, there's a downside to an extent. And I guess that's easy to say for for Barcelona, which is a billion dollars in debt, or maybe not anymore with the Palancas, but still in debt and in a bad situation. Real Madrid's the Champions League winner, but they didn't get Mbappe. Uh, where, like, What do they symbolize that those clubs did well that right now there's questions about? With Messi, I think the assumption was because of the success he had so young and because of the style he embodied uh, and the guys he came up with, the it kind of papered over a lot of things about their youth development. And because it was, this is the way Barcelona wants to play. This is what Cruyff left us. Uh, if it worked once for this generation, it's going to work forever. Um, and as they continued to to move through the messy era we saw that the pipeline had dried up and so they kept bringing in basically b plus players to surround him with and his frustration was obvious as you know from from watching him and covering him um he he often lost patience and eventually you know by the by the late messy era champions league humiliations the 8-2 all of that he was fed up with with the quality, and it was really just a pale imitation of the Barca we had known in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Um, so while he represented the success of, of their whole philosophy, he also uh, let them get too comfortable. I think he also I think he also embodied a sort of um, artistry and, and almost purity that Barcelona traded on very happily and um, as things have gone south since he's left. It, it, and that, that sort of allowed them to sort of, you know, um, sort of cover up it, it, to some degree things like the, you know, decision to have Qatar Airways on, on the jersey where Barcelona had previously had no sponsor. You know, uh, um, uh, uh, now we see the sort of 
a very sort of flagrant, like hawking off of any piece of Barcelona that, that, that they can sell to the highest bidder. And I think for a long time, Messi sort of camouflaged a lot of that stuff because, like I say, he was seen as this, sort of, because his genius seemed to sort of spring forth so naturally. I think that he, he sort of conferred, like I say, almost a, a sort of purity on Barcelona that has, has been stripped away since he's left. And in terms of Real Madrid, sort of... Where do you view them right now? I mean, like they are the Champions League winners, but the their star players are pretty old, if we're yeah. being honest. And the young superstar that they wanted, they didn't get. Yeah, I, I think I think they are somehow, you know, diminished, even even as Champions League winners. I think you're right that um Real Madrid, you know, certainly for the Florentino era. Uh, you know, a long time before as well, but 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 the, the whole ethos of the Florentino era was that Real Madrid was the team of stars, right? The Galacticos, that was the whole point of the project. And they now look like a team, you know, sad, you know, desperately missing a start. Uh, Benzema is the, the Ballon d'Or winner, propelled them to the Champions League last year. But you can't escape the fact that he was a, a, a B player when Ronaldo was on the team. You know, he was he was a support player when, when Ronaldo led the team. And the same goes for Modric. So these are wonderful, you know, generational players, sure. But they are not box office in the way that Ronaldo and Mbappe were. And Real Madrid without that A-list box office star feels not like Real Madrid. Which player was harder to report on, Messi or Ronaldo? I think because Ronaldo has moved around more and kind of touched more parts of the soccer world, uh, and and is slightly more textured in many ways because he he wears his his emotions on his sleeve and uh, you know when he's not happy. Uh, I think he gives you more things to latch on to. Messi because he was within Barcelona for so long. Uh, you know you you report hard on the Barcelona side and you report hard on the Argentina side and then there's not that many more places to go with him. Um, but I think we still were able to to get into their inner circles and uh, and really uncover some things that, uh, you know, I think even we didn't realize. And one of the surprises for us was in the, the more we learned about them, the more similar we realized they were in certain ways. And really that, you know, the main way being they are both these uh, frothing competitive monsters. Uh, you know, Ronaldo shows it more when he's grimacing at his teammates who aren't on his level, but Messi too. And, and it was very revealing for us when we went into the La Masia years and talked to the other kids who were on the generation 87 team, the boys who were born in 1987, realizing that even at 13, 14 years old, Messi was rage quitting at PlayStation and getting mad when someone else scored 10 goals and he'd only scored nine. And, and how do you, just from a craft perspective, how do the two of you sort of split up your work? Because the the writing style is seamless throughout the book. So it's kind of one voice, it seems like. But I also realize that you must divide up the tasks to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I think it helps that um, we've worked with each other for so long. And I spent a long time editing Josh. So... Um, you know, I feel like the, the the voice stuff comes pretty naturally to us. We both sort of naturally write in, in very sort of similar ways. And then we do a lot of sort of smoothing afterwards to make sure that that everything sort of reads, like you say, as one voice. Um, yeah, the, the, in terms of like chopping up who's doing what, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time planning, um, you know, how the chapters are going to look before anyone starts like hitting the keyboard. So... By the time you know we're ready to sit down and start going, 
we pretty much know exactly where the chapters are going right down to the sort of transitions between different sections. And once, we, once, once you know that, once you know the, 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 the path that you're going to go on for the next sort of 10, 15,000 words, it's, it becomes much easier to, to, to sort of split that work and divide it. Um, uh, that there are times when we will handle individual chapters ourselves, but much of this book, we were we were sharing chapters and just writing different parts of them. I should also say uh, you have spent many years, both of you, at the Wall Street Journal, where you still are, and, and uh, that's where I think where you kind of met up in the first place. So that's right. uh, you've been doing great work for a long time together, including on your books. And and before I go to the my next question here, I'll congratulate you because it's been announced that you have another book coming up uh, on Formula One, right? You want to describe that real quick? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's very much, we're very excited about it because Formula One's having a, a real moment in the US and capitalize on the pandemic, maybe like no other sport. Um, it's called The Formula. It'll be out in 2024. Uh, and it's it takes the model of the club, uh, our first book, and the way it looked at the rise of the Premier League and applies that to, to Formula One and captures all the money, the craziness, the... Uh, wild explosion of the past few years and traces all of that from you know from when it the sport was in crisis and nearly disappeared uh so it should be a lot of fun and you know captures it's a world that comes with so much color and uh so many characters that i think we can have a lot of fun with it fantastic i'll be looking forward to that um a couple more questions just about your current book coming out here on messi and ronaldo heading into this world cup both players are on teams that are theoretically good enough to win it, though maybe not the top favorites, even though Argentina has gone 34 games without a loss and is the they won the Copa America most recently. But as of right now, Cristiano Ronaldo seems to be in a sort of sour frame of mind, and Lionel Messi does not appear to be in a sour frame of mind. What do you make of all of that? Well, um, I think as it as, as the World Cup goes, um, I think that might actually work out well for both of them. Um, Lionel Messi, um, I think, you know, documenting his career, you realize that he performs at his best when he's happiest, when he's most comfortable. And he definitely seems to have reached a stage now with the Argentina national team where he is very comfortable and very happy. And I think for a lot of, a lot of his career, that was definitely not the case. Um, I think he felt very frustrated, and um, and so I think I think Argentina will have a good cup, and I think Messi will have a good cup. I also think it might not be the worst thing for Ronaldo, who historically throughout his career has managed to turn any sort of slight or um, you know uh, uh, negative situation into fuel to uh, to fire him to success. And so I think you know the fact that he is sort of going into this world cup as both the you know by far and, far and away the most famous soccer player on the planet and yet somehow sort of overlooked in the grand sort of conversation about the world cup um you know is the sort of thing that his you know insanely competitive temperament will um you know turn into an advantage it, it's very much the jordan i took that personally me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think Looking to the future, and I realize that Ronaldo is a bit older than Messi. What do you think are the chances of Ronaldo and Messi coming to Major League Soccer? I think, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I, I think, you know, it's it's tough to predict because they are in a different class from every other European star, you know, European soccer star we've seen before. So the tra their trajectory has always been different. 
Um, so it's more difficult to to anticipate how that trajectory ends. Um, but I, I think the we know that they both love money, uh, and there's a lot of it over here. Um, so you know, it's very possible that one of them will work out a deal with Inter Miami, for instance. Just just an example. Uh, you know, to then come and, and swan around MLS for a year or two um, and and take, a, you know, a, a check signed by David Beckham. That would make a lot of sense from a business perspective. And, you know, whether Ronaldo still has enough juice to, to play, you know, at any competitive level for the next couple of years is, is hard to say. And Messi, uh, you know, is having a little bit of a renaissance this season at PSG. But also, he's much, much more business oriented in the past couple of years than he's ever been before. You know, much more aware of sponsors. You know, the the kid who until very recently was wearing jean shorts, uh, you know, to to appearances, suddenly has a sponsorship with Dior in Paris. So there are definitely, as you know, as they might, as someone might say to them, there are more synergies available in MLS to them. What's your sense, Jonathan, about that? Because like. I see Ronaldo literally right now as someone who wants to be on a Champions League team and can't get on one. And I think Major League Soccer is ready for him and he's ready for Major League Soccer. Messi, I could still see sticking around with PSG, potentially going back to Barcelona if they find some way to make that happen. Or maybe he has spent... You know, we, we've seen him spend a fair amount of time in South Florida over the last few years and have even seen reports sort of knocked down since then. But still that you know, he's got sort of uh, a, either a verbal agreement or some sort of offer from Inter Miami. What's your sense, Jonathan? Yeah, I think um, I think so with Ronaldo, I think you know, maybe maybe with both of them, I think a lot will depend on what happens at the World Cup. Um, I think Ronaldo has. Um, both have said that they they expect this to be their last World Cup. I believe Ronaldo has said that he plans to play at least one more Euro. So mm. um, he definitely plans to continue playing for another two years. Um, and it certainly seems like his ambitions in Europe, you know, the, 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 the sort of club that he could move, you know, finding a club that would match his ambitions in Europe will be tricky. So I do think that the, the move to MLS makes more sense um, now and perhaps a successful World Cup, not necessarily Portugal winning it, but um, you know a, a World Cup in which he performed well and Portugal performed well um, could spur him to sort of consider that move afterwards. Um, Messi, like you, I, I, I sort of I, Messi has said this will be his last World Cup also, but I, I feel like he has uh, you know more left in the tank. I mean, he's two years younger than Ronaldo anyway, so. I feel like he he could still play for longer, and I do sense that a return to Barcelona is something that all parties would be interested in. So I think while I can definitely see Messi playing in MLS at some stage, I think that might be further down the line. I, I would say that I can see them both coming to MLS, maybe not as players but as owners. You know, when you try and think of of what the future holds for Messi and Ronaldo beyond their playing years, it's hard to imagine them as pundits as coaches even but definitely some sort of beckham style you know front of a of an ownership consortium or something seems like exactly the sort of thing that they would be interested in and um obviously mls has uh, has a lot of opportunities and and um and that might strike them as the right sort of um 
sort of move. So, so that's something I wouldn't rule out. The authors are Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. Their new book is Messi versus Ronaldo, One Rivalry, Two Goats in the Era that Remade the World's Game. Congratulations, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having us. We'll see you in Qatar. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Crystal Dunn, Jonathan Clegg, and Joshua Robinson, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Mm